And we welcome you to the Thursday morning show on WGTD. I'm Gregory Berg. Today's program was supposed to be devoted to an interview with Ellen Lem, the author of Gray Matters, a very interesting book about how to make the later years of life more meaningful. I am postponing that interview until next week because I discovered an interesting bit of trivia about today's date, the 25th of August. It was on this date back in the year 1835 that the first of six articles appeared in the New York Sun, which was New York City's first so-called penny paper, an inexpensive newspaper conceived for the general masses rather than the upper class of the city. And these six articles chronicled in breathtaking detail the discovery by British astronomers that the moon was inhabited, and inhabited by an array of absolutely incredible, remarkable, fantastic creatures. It was all, of course, a hoax. Matthew Goodman's fascinating book, The Sun uh, and the Moon, tells the story of this hoax that duped a large swath of the city's population. But the book goes beyond that to tell the story of what New York City was like at this point in its history when it became our nation's largest city. It's also an interesting examination of the state of journalism. <laughs> I put that in quotes at this point in our nation's history. The full title of the book is The Sun and the Moon, the remarkable true account of hoaxers, showmen, dueling journalists, and lunar man-bats in 19th century New York, published by Basic Books. I began the interview, which was recorded and initially broadcast back in 2008, by asking Matthew Goodman to explain how he first stumbled upon this amazing, if all but forgotten, story. I uh, grew up in New York. I'm fascinated by the history of New York. I knew I'd wanted to write a book um, uh, that involved New York in some way. I was reading a book uh, about New York, and I happened to cross a reference to something called the Moon Hoax. Well, I didn't know what that was. Uh, I had never heard of it. And when I began to look into it and discovered these incredible articles that had been published in the summer of 1835 that convinced New Yorkers that life had been discovered on the moon, I thought, well, this is extraordinary, and I've never heard anything about it. Is it possible that no one has ever written a book about this? And lo and behold, no one ever had written a book about it. And I said, well, that's the book uh, that I'm going to write, um, one that I hope describes not only these incredible events, but also uh, brings to life as vividly as I possibly could what life was like in New York in the 1830s and the beginnings of the newspaper business as we know it today. Right. Let's talk about both of those, those things. First, the city of New York City. And you mention in your prologue that, that part of why this is worth talking about in such great detail is because you say this is the story about the moment New York first came to see itself not just one, one city among many, but as the leading city in the United States and indeed one of the world's great cities. Uh, tell us briefly why this is such uh, an important, pivotal moment in the history of this particular city. Um, it really is. Uh, the 1830s is an absolutely critical decade 
in the history of New York, and it's one that has not been written much about. Uh, you know, gangs of New York people are familiar with. Um, that takes place about 20 years later. Uh, there are a number of books about New York in the 1880s and 1890s, books about New York during the Revolutionary period. Not much about New York in the 1830s. But the 1830s is when New York became the largest city in the country. Um, it's when immigrants first started arriving in New York. Um, it's when the shipping industry began in New York. It's when the garment industry began in New York. It's when New York became uh, a leading media center, uh, the entertainment capital. It's really when New York became recognizable to us as New York. Um, I mean, it's an amazing time because the New York of that time um, is both deeply familiar to us and at the same time utterly strange. You know, it, it feels as far away almost as, you know, ancient Rome or something. The city didn't go past 14th Street. Beyond that, it was all just just forest. Uh, you know, you had newspaper editors who were beating each other up on the street, you know, who were, who were fighting pistol duels with each other. It all was very odd. And yet, at the same time, um, it, we can really see the beginnings of what we understand as New York today. I also love the way in which your book helps us much better understand what newspapers were back in, for instance, 1833. Uh, you do a great job of describing, first of all, what the typical newspaper was. And this, I mean, before the emergence of the sun which was a very different kind of newspaper. That, that's right. Uh, up, up to that point, newspapers were really meant only for the elite of the city, really for the aristocrats, for the merchants of the city. They cost six cents a copy, which doesn't seem like much to us, but it was a great deal of money at the time. Um, and the types of articles that they covered were really meant for you know, the mercantile classes, you know, they'd focus on ships launchings and international commodity prices and the foreign economic situation and so forth. Benjamin Day, who started The Sun in 1833, had a very different idea of what a newspaper should be. He meant it to be uh, for the average people of the city, the working people of the city. He was only going to charge one cent per issue instead of six, thus the origin of the phrase penny paper. Um, and he was going to write about the kinds of, of things that he thought most people wanted to read about. So he began to focus on crime. Uh, you begin to see a lot of crime stories in the news, um, entertainment, sports, uh, scandal, gossip, and so forth. Uh, he really began to set the template for what we understand to be uh, local newspapers of today. It's interesting. You. First of all, you cite some fascinating statistics on how few people read newspapers right That's before right. the emergence of the sun. You quote, the combined circulation of the 11 daily newspapers in New York City as 26,000, and in a city with a quarter of a million inhabitants. That, of course, was not an impressive number at all, but it makes sense if, in fact, the newspapers only cared about the upper crust of society and not just regular folks. That's right. The newspapers uh, were intensely competitive, but they were really competing for a very, very thin slice of uh, New York's population. You know, the, 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 the number of people who could actually afford to, to read these papers, it was a very small amount. Um, by the time that this hoax was over, in the summer of 1835, the New York Sun was not just the most widely read newspaper 
in New York. It was the most widely read newspaper in the entire world. It totally changed the economics mm. of the newspaper industry. By the time the, the hoax was over, the Sun circulation was as much as all the other newspapers in New York combined. Mm. So this was really the moment at which people kind of sat up and took notice and said, wow, the penny paper can really can really function. It can really work. It can really survive. And that's when you began to see this type of paper, the penny paper, begin to to crop up um, all around the country. You know, the Baltimore Sun, the Cleveland Plain Dealer, the New Orleans Times Picayune, all papers which continue today had their origin um, at this at this moment. You really uh, give us a lot of fascinating details about how that very first issue was put together all the way to uh... how uh, benjamin day is basically copying advertisements from other newspapers and sticking them into that very first issue of the sun i mean figuring that uh... you know some department store wouldn't mind That's some right. free advertising but it was all to give the appearance that this was a legitimate newspaper. That's right. I mean, Benjamin Day was by no means a wealthy man. He was a, 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 a young, struggling printer who owned a print shop looking for a way to make some money. And he uh, basically put together the first issue of The Sun single-handedly. And as you mentioned, he just simply copied out advertisements from the more... Uh, more well-to-do newspapers in town, figuring nobody would, you know, nobody would mind it if he gave them free advertising. Um, and he went out and, and sold the, the paper on the city himself. And it was uh, only a, about a week later that he realized, you know what, I need uh, to come up with another way of selling this paper. I can't do it all by myself. And that's when he hit on the idea of hiring newsboys to go out in the streets of New York and sell the paper. Up to that point, newspapers had been sold entirely by subscription. Right. Uh, you know, the, edit the editors thought it was somehow ungentlemanly uh, and beneath them to, to, to hawk their paper on the streets of the city. <laughs> I like um, you. you and them. Benjamin Day said, well, I've got a different way of doing it. And uh, he sent his newsboys out throughout the city to hawk their paper. And, of course, it became, you know, an incredibly successful way. And soon... The other papers began to hire their own newsboys to, you know, hawk their papers on the streets of the city, and that was the beginning of the newsboy in New York, yet another way in which the Sun totally revolutionized the newspaper industry. And, of course, uh, part of what makes this uh, a groundbreaking paper is, is what we found in it, in particular uh, attention given to uh, the city's police reports, and uh, the court reporter would... Uh, write stories about all kinds of of that's hellacious right. crimes committed and transcripts of trials and this and that and that's right the first the first reporter that the sun had on staff was a guy named george wisner who basically went um into the the new york city police court at four in the morning which is when they brought in all of the um the criminals who had been arrested the night before and they went before the magistrate and he simply reported on all of these crimes that had been um, committed in the city in great detail, often with dialogue, you know, between the prisoners and the judges and the lawyers and so forth, people absolutely ate it up. It was the first time anything like this had ever appeared in a, a newspaper before. Um, people were fascinated to see what was actually going on in their city, what was going on in their neighborhoods. Up to that point, it was much easier to find uh, a story out of London than it was to find a story from your own your own neighborhood. 
Um, so, so people absolutely loved it, and it's the, the police court report soon became the most popular part of the newspaper. Right. In a sense, it was the newspaper finally being about the real people of New York City, including ordinary people. You, you write at one point, these were the city's bone and sinew, the people who kept it moving forward and who, barring great misdeed or misfortune, never found their way into the papers, uh, that is, until, until now. We need to talk about Richard Adams Locke, who uh, is the author of this series of articles which uh, propelled the sun to even greater uh, glory. You call him, uh, at the opening of Chapter 3, a newspaper fabulist. That's a term I don't think that's going to be familiar to very many people. Well, he was a fabulist in the sense that he invented, uh, you know, this incredible, uh, entirely made-up story about life on the moon. Uh, but as it turns out, as I've discovered in my research um, into him, that much of what he said about himself turned out to be not the case as well, and unfortunately has made its way into all of the subsequent histories uh, of this event when it's written about at all, which is not very much. Uh, he claimed that he had gone to the University of Cambridge in England. Uh, it turns out he had not. He claimed um, that he uh, was born in New York City. He was not. He was born uh, in England. He claimed his father was in the Canadian uh, Armed Forces, and he was not, and, and so on and so forth. Much of what uh, we know today about Richard Adams Locke turns out to be wrong. Um, and he turns out, in fact, to be a far more complex and fascinating man than I think he had been given credit for. And I, I, I came to feel quite sympathetic to him um, over the course of the book. As it turns out, Richard Adams Locke had not intended these articles to be a hoax at all. He was the, the creator of the most successful hoax in the history of newspaper journalism, but he had not even intended it. Um, to be a hoax. He had intended it to be a satire. The religious astronomers of the day who were very popular believed that there was life on all of the other planets, uh, on the moon, on, on even on the sun, on comets, on asteroids, and so forth, because they believed that God would not uh, create these worlds without also creating intelligent beings there to appreciate them. Uh, this was widely believed. Uh, by astronomers as well as by lay people. Richard Adams Locke thought this was absolute nonsense. Uh, he thought it was religion masking uh, as, itself as science. He thought it was a profoundly dangerous idea. And so he decided to write these articles as a satire uh, of those ideas. Little did he suspect that people would actually come to believe them as true. Um, he is, that, that was not his intention. He is taking, uh, in a sense, the, the, the name of one of the most famous astronomers in the world, uh, the, the, the father of another famous astronomer who discovered one of the planets, Neptune right. or Uranus. And, uh, and this astronomer is apparently in, uh, uh, is it South Africa? South, Af South Africa right. at the time. Right, Locke, Locke claimed that, um, that Sir John Herschel, the eminent British astronomer, had made these discoveries from his observatory in South Africa. Uh, there really was a Sir John Herschel, um, and as you mentioned, he was uh, perhaps the most famous astronomer of his day, part of the great Herschel family of astronomers. Um, and South Africa was conveniently 
halfway around the world. And in the days before the telegram, it took months for word to reach Herschel about the discoveries that had been claimed in his name. Uh, at first, he was amused uh, to hear about these reports. He was, he was very impressed with how well they were, uh, how well done they were. Locke was, uh, was an astronomy buff and knew a great deal about science. He made it seem very realistic. Uh, so he was amused at first, but then as time went on and as, uh, you know, the months passed and he was getting day after day after day letters from all around the world, um, from England and, and Germany and France and, and the United States saying, tell us more about your remarkable lunar discoveries. When are we going to hear more about this? Um, he became less amused and eventually he became somewhat irate that his good name had been wrapped up in this uh, piece of what he considered to be nonsense. And of course, it was the most sensational story that anyone had ever heard. I mean, it was, in, in many respects, the story of the century, and, uh, and it transformed the, the whole notion of what could and should appear in a newspaper. And in some respects, uh, Mr. Locke is, is perhaps credited with writing the very first science fiction tale. Uh, I would never... say so. I, I would say so. Uh, Locke um, really did write the first science, fi science fiction story. Uh, that's a, 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 um, a title that is more often given to another character in the book, uh, Edgar Allan Poe, uh, who's a major character in the story as well. Um, as P.T. Barnum, uh, but the Sun series was the most widely circulated news story of its time. Not only did it appear in the Sun, but, you know, the Sun's other rival newspapers in New York, not wanting to miss out on the action, began to publish the story on their own front pages as well. Um, and then as the story, as word of the story began to make its way around the country, it became published in newspapers around the country. And eventually it made its way over to Europe hmm. and illustrated pamphlets uh, um, of uh, compiling, compilations of these articles appeared in England and France and Portugal and Spain and Switzerland and Germany uh, all throughout the continent. So it really was the most widely circulated story of its time. And, of course, uh, even for those who maybe found it hard to believe, they couldn't resist the urge to read more. In just our closing moments, uh, explain why in this book, aside from the story of the sun and this m remarkable series of stories, you do also give uh, such fascinating attention to P.T. Barnum and Edgar Allan Poe. How do these stories fold together? Sure. Well, uh, the very same month that the sun, uh, the sun's moon series appears, August of 1835, a young showman, or would-be showman named P.T. Barnum, arrives in New York with his own hoax in tow. An elderly black woman named Joyce Hess, who he claims is 161 years old, and the former nursemaid of the infant George Washington. It causes a, a, a huge sensation in the city, and it really establishes Barnum um, as a showman, as a hoaxer. That hoax would eventually be exposed by none other than Richard Adams Locke himself um, in The Sun. Uh, so Barnum is a major character in the story. And Edgar Allan Poe, who was then a young uh, writer living in Richmond, Virginia, just two months before the Sun series appeared, Poe had written a short story uh, based on his own reading of none other than John Herschel, uh, imagining a balloon trip to the moon full of all kinds of scientific detail. He's convinced that the Sun has plagiarized his idea. Um, he rails against 
the Sun series. Um, he's irate about the success of the Sun series compared to the obscurity of his own story. And nine years later, when he moves to New York, his very first order of business is to plant his own hoax in the pages of the Sun to prove his superiority <laughs> as a hoaxer once and for all. All of these remarkable stories and more in this tremendously interesting book called The Sun and the Moon. It's published by Basic Books and the author, Matthew Goodman. Matthew Goodman, I congratulate you on one of the most interesting, entertaining, and educational books I've read in a long time. I really well, enjoyed it. Well, thank this. you so much, and thanks for having me. listening to the Thursday Morning Show on WGTD. I'm Gregory Berg. By the way, if you were expecting to hear Dr. Thomas Carr, director of the paleontology program at Carthage College, that interview actually occurred yesterday on the morning show. And you can hear that interview by going to our website, wgtd.org, and seeking out the morning show archive. Or you can revisit that interview uh, via the podcast version of the program, Look for the Morning Show with Greg Berg. For part two of today's morning show, we're dipping into the archives for an interview that was recorded and initially broadcast back in 2005. It is always a great pleasure to have sort of a dusty, obscure corner of history uh, uncovered for us. And such is the case with a very interesting book called Sailors in the Holy Land, the 1848 American Expedition to the Dead Sea and the Search for Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, the book is by Andrew C.A. Jampoler, uh, a retired naval uh, aviator uh, who has uh, written uh, a number of different books. And uh, this one is uh, a very, very interesting one indeed, published by the Naval Institute Press in Annapolis, Maryland. And uh, I'm really grateful to uh, Andrew C.A. Jampoler for writing such an interesting book and for joining me on the morning show to talk about it. Uh, Mr. Jampoler, we welcome you. I'm happy to be here, Greg. Thank you for your attention and for your kind words about sailors. It's a, a very, very interesting book. I appreciated, too, that in the acknowledgments, uh, without, any, without any fuss or beating around the bush, you really squarely give credit to uh, another book, which made kind of brief mention of this extraordinary expedition, which I assume until then you, you, you knew nothing about. Just tell us real quickly about where you first heard of this uh, extraordinary trip. I was reading a book by Mark Kurlansky called Salt. Uh, Mark is, uh, is 
modestly famous for writing wonderfully well about strange topics. And this book on <laughs> sort of the natural history of salt attracted my attention after I'd read his book about codfish. And there in the middle of salt was a short paragraph talking about the U.S. Navy expedition to the Dead Sea. And my immediate reaction was disbelief. I, I could think of no less strategic body of salt water in the mid-19th century than a closed lake in the middle of the Ottoman Empire. So I, I disbelieved it, and it just kept worrying at me as I began thinking, well, gee, suppose it's true. You know, wouldn't that be just, just an amazing story? That the, Amer- that the American Navy dispatched an expedition uh, to the Eastern Hemisphere to, to, uh, to visit the Dead Sea. Well, in, and in the middle of uh, the Mexican-American War, at a time when the Navy was tiny, uh, the government was tiny, for that matter, the United States was pretty small, the idea that we would launch such an expedition of exploration so far away uh, to such a mysterious and, and mystical place uh, interested me, and, uh, and the research over the course of the next couple of years uh, confirmed that it was a fabulous trip and, and really quite remarkable event, uh, although you, you correctly point out it's a sort of a footnote to history. I wouldn't pretend to you that great events swung on its outcome. Right, but it's just extraordinary that such a thing uh, ever occurred. Um, describe for us a little bit your process as a historian in trying to learn more about this. Uh, First of all, where where does one go to begin the process of uncovering information about something which you're not even absolutely certain really occurred? I, I began at the National Archives here in Washington and uh, examined the archives to see what they held on uh, on Lieutenant William Lynch, the expedition commander, and on that period in time. And in fact, the archives holds his correspondence with Secretary of the Navy Mason, uh, John uh, Young Mason at the time. Lynch proposed the expedition in May of 1847, and over the course of the next year and a half, he corresponded quite frequently with the Secretary. First uh, to get permission, and then to report to the Secretary events as the expedition unfolded. Uh, The archives were a great source. Uh, The Library of Congress uh, has uh, digitized almost all the periodical articles, newspapers, magazines, things of this sort, uh, going back through this period. Uh, so it's possible to search for mention of the Dead Sea, for mention of Lynch and the expedition. For that matter, the Turkish archives, the Ottoman archives, have correspondence on the Lynch expedition. It's all, uh, not surprisingly, in Turkish, but there are people who, uh, who in Turkey were very helpful to me as I did my research. And, uh, and finally... I went and tried to duplicate the expedition's track as closely as political conditions permit. I spent time in Turkey and Israel and Jordan uh, covering the ground that, that Lieutenant Lynch and his volunteers had covered in an effort better to understand what he'd done and what he'd gone through. Very good. One thing that's a little curious to me is the introduction to the book, right after the acknowledgments, when you uh, tell us... Uh, a great deal, and it's all very, very interesting about Lieutenant William Lynch and uh, his marriage to uh, Virginia Shaw, which eventually ended in divorce. Um, again, it's it's very, very interesting reading, but explain to our listeners what this story and such detail about it is is doing in in this book and in such a prominent place. 
I wanted the readers to travel with Lynch on this expedition, knowing who their commander was, and knowing what motivated him, what inspired him, and what kind of a person he was. Uh, you were going to spend, uh, figuratively, uh, a year with, with him as he, as he traveled uh, uh, across the Sea of Galilee, down the Jordan River, uh, onto the Dead Sea, uh, there and back. And I thought it was important that you understood Lieutenant William Lynch, the man, uh, as well as Lynch the sailor, Lynch the officer, uh, Lynch the deeply devout uh, Christian, uh, Lynch the historian. And for that purpose, I began the book with a discussion of, of his life here in the United States and some of the reasons he had for wanting to mount the expedition. He had good reasons for wanting to go. He also had good reasons for wanting to leave. Uh, to leave the United States, he, uh, he was in the middle of a very painful, as you say, a very painful divorce from his wife of many years. Uh, his oldest uh, child and only daughter had just died. Uh, he'd spent some time unemployed, uh, uh, a naval officer ashore without a command, without an assignment, and a lot of time worrying about his health. Uh, he wasn't frail, but, uh, but he was not a hale, particularly hale person. So I thought uh, to begin that way would give, uh, would give a reader a sense as, as Lynch and USS Supply left Brooklyn uh, at the end of the year, it would give a sense of, of who the man was who was leading them into these uh, distant places to see uh, remarkable things. Hmm. You uh, give us kind of an interesting list of of some of uh, William Lynch's qualifications. It's a, it's a really interesting list. You say he was a capable mariner, a fair geographer, botanist, and geologist, a self-schooled historian, and would eventually write a commercially successful travelogue and a peculiar autobiography. So he is kind of an interesting mix of of qualifications and and experiences, but I have a feeling that's not particularly unique when we talk about uh, sailors who traveled the world. I mean, there was a lot tied up in those kind of responsibilities and duties. I, I think that's a good insight. In fact, uh, in the 19th century, and certainly the middle of the 19th century, some of the great and some of the very few tourists there were in the world uh, were sailors, were uh, American sailors and Royal Navy sailors and others, because they had at, at hand the way to travel. They had their ship. It was going to take them somewhere. And if they were officers, once they arrived, they were going to be allowed off ship uh, to see the local sites. Uh, as a result, uh, uh, tourism was this, a special strength uh, um, among naval officers uh, who were explorers as much as they were tourists. And they were extraordinarily well-educated and well-prepared for that. Uh, Lynch uh, read deeply in history. When, when he traveled through the Holy Land, there was no place that he didn't see that uh, he was unfamiliar with, that he didn't recognize either from classical text or biblical text. Uh, he was a, a very broad-gauged man in an era when uh, that was perhaps more common than it is today. You said that, that Lynch uh, joining the Navy was probably uh, for him a, a very natural choice since he was, uh, in his own words, a motherless teenager. Do I have that right? You do have it right, and, uh, and Lynch had it wrong. I, I don't know why he described himself that way, because I have correspondence. Uh, I found it in some archives in Philadelphia that indicates that Lynch's mother lived 
I think, well into her 60s. And in fact, uh, in the 1850s, early 1850s, she lived with him. Uh, why he described himself in those terms uh, is one of the several mysteries uh, of his personality. Right. But maybe it was uh, maybe partly indicating uh, a desire to not be tied to home in some way. Is that possible? Uh, it's not impossible. Uh, certainly, uh, he left home at the age of 16 and never returned. Uh, it's, uh, uh, it, it's curious that he refers to his father in a very offhand way that he, he suggests that his mother... Uh, didn't participate in raising him. And when he writes later in life, he sounds like there's no one at home uh, to whom he has any connection. Uh, this is part of his personality that I think, again, it's important for readers to understand because uh, he was an odd, uh, distant figure. Uh, at the same time, he, he was very careful to take good care of his crew and to take great pride in, in doing so. Hmm. So... Uh, it's an odd mixture of, of personality traits that, uh, that underlies uh, a commander of what turned out to be a very successful expedition. This request was made at a time when, uh, when Lynch needed a challenge uh, for, for some personal reasons that you've already, already touched on, but also just the, the fact that, that uh, there was not, in, in some respects, a, enough work naval work to go around unless one would create sort of special projects like this. Is that an oversimplification or is no, that no that's a work? fair that's a fair description. There there was never enough work to go around, even in wartime, uh the in those days. Uh the United States Navy was a little over eleven thousand officers and men, sixty some odd ships, about a dozen shore installations. Uh of that number of ships, about half of them, perhaps a little less than that were at sea, and it had an officer corps that was large enough to, uh, to support a substantially larger fleet. And consequently, the competition to go to sea, and especially to command a ship at sea, which paid extra, uh, was very, very keen. Uh, Lynch uh, had been ashore for some years uh, before. Uh, he was waiting assignment, he was waiting for orders, and his letter to the secretary suggesting this expedition uh, among other things, was designed to uh, find him himself employment, uh, recognizing that he hadn't served in the Mexican-American War with any distinction. So uh, if, his, if he was ambitious, and he certainly was, he needed to do something that would gain the Secretary of the Navy's and the public's attention. Hmm. And the expedition, was, the expedition was, was in part designed to do that. Now, on the surface, what did he suggest would be accomplished by going to the Dead Sea? What officially was his reason for requesting this? The Dead Sea was the subject of enormous speculation. Uh, very little was known about it. Much was said about it. Uh, most of what was said was wrong. Uh, Lynch's proposal was to conduct scientific uh, researches uh, in the region. Uh, the key question of the time was exactly what was the elevation of the surface of the Dead Sea. There was some belief, some speculation, that the Dead Sea lay below global sea level. Uh, no one was absolutely certain of that, and, and even more so, no one knew, if it did, how far it lay below sea level. So the key scientific question was the answer, uh, just exactly what was, uh, what was the elevation of the Dead Sea, what was its character, what sort of flora and fauna lived on or near its waters, in its waters, and what were conditions like there. Beyond that, privately, 
uh, Lynch was uh, was looking to conduct, uh, for his own part, a private pilgrimage. As I indicated a little while ago, he was uh, very religious uh, and had hoped to make uh, make a trip to the Holy Land, a pilgrimage, several times before in his life for a number of reasons that never happened. So he saw in this expedition the possibility of combining uh, sort of legitimate uh, scientific uh, research together with a private quest, hmm. an opportunity to tour the Holy Land. When Secretary Mason uh, grants the request that this uh, expedition I- indeed be undertaken, you said that, that there were really two reasons for that approval. One of them was uh, some of this scientific work, but you also say it was definitely to improve the image of the Navy, which at that point in time was very much in the shadow of the U.S. Army. That's correct. Uh, The Mexican-American War was largely uh, a land campaign, although uh, the U.S. Navy had squadrons uh, in the Gulf of Mexico and squadrons offshore in the Pacific off of California. Uh, Mason was conscious of the fact that in in the public's mind, the Navy uh, did not uh, play a commanding role, was not particularly visible, and he was looking ways to raise the visibility of the Navy uh, in the context of, of Mexican-American war events and publicity. Uh, beyond that, he too was interested in the scientific questions, and he was not insensitive uh, to the interest uh, in the Holy Land that, that many Americans had simply because of their religious faith. And in mid-19th century, the United States was very frankly a Christian nation, and People saw, or many people saw, no particular uh, uh, contradiction in the idea that uh, that while he was conduct, while Lynch was conducting science, he would also report back on such things as he might be able to say about the Book of Genesis and about the events in Genesis that speak of the area. Hmm. One of the things you say about this moment in time is that this was. Uh, just when uh, a sort of contest or or a competition of wills was taking place uh, between those that wanted to sail ships and those who wanted ships to be powered by steam, uh, it's it's fascinating to to think about. I mean, in, in our day, we confront this all the time: the emergence of a new technology. But it's kind of interesting to think about what it felt like in the 1840s. Uh, to see the way people traveled the oceans of the world uh, suddenly and dramatically changing. That, the change was sudden and dramatic, but it took a long time fully to, to have an effect. Uh, navies and merchantmen uh, experimented with steam for decades uh, before steam became uh, the way to go, so to speak, and sails atrophied and disappeared entirely. Uh, for a long time, ste- uh, steam... Uh, despite its virtues, uh, was regarded with some suspicion. The questions about reliability, questions about where were you going to get uh, uh, get the coal you needed. Uh, beyond that, uh, it for navies it, it changed how they operated. They uh, had to pay as much attention now to fuel supplies uh, as to anything else. And in the days of sail, of course, uh, you didn't worry about that. The ship was was sort of uh, standalone, independent. Uh, it could go anywhere, anywhere the wind would let it go. So it took decades for that transition to be be effective or to be accomplished completely. And during those decades, there were always people uh, on one side or another side of the question debating uh, 
whether or not this was the right thing to do and were they doing it correctly. We're speaking with Andrew C.A. Jampoler. His book is called Sailors in the Holy Land. You give us so many fascinating details about how an expedition like this is, is put together. We don't have time to talk about them all, but um, tell our listeners a little bit about just the challenge of stocking a ship for an expedition like this. Uh, you said that in, in some respects, loading the, the ship supply for one year at sea was like stocking a general store for a small town in a remote place. Lynch put aboard USS Supply an enormous amount of, of naval stores, first for the squadron in the Mediterranean that he was uh, going over to provide provisions for uh, the four or five ships that the United States had permanently stationed in the Med. But beyond that, he needed uh, equipment for his own expedition. So aboard the ship was everything from scientific instruments to paint to spare masts, to two purpose-built rowboats that he was going to take down the River Jordan with him, uh, foodstuffs of all sorts and descriptions, uniforms and uniform bits and pieces for sailors in the Mediterranean squadron, shoes, chain, uh, fish hooks, it went on and on. And uh, the, the image of a general store popped to mind because uh, we have one uh, not far from me uh, here in northern Virginia that has been open for, for more than a century now, and it's astonishing the stuff that's squirreled away inside the third and fourth basements of, of these old buildings. Uh, that's the way I picture supply, setting for sea a cram full of, of everything that anybody could guess someone might need during the more than a year that they would be away from home. Hmm. Uh, a couple of factors play a very important role and weigh heavily on Lynch and his men. And one of them is that of disease. And it's a, a something which crops up at, at several different points during the story. And I suppose it was nothing unique to this expedition at all, that this was always uh, a potentially very grim threat for sailors at sea. We don't recognize how much disease has affected uh, human history. I think the last time here in the United States it was a tremendous player in our lives was before the conquest of polio uh, decades ago. In mid-19th century, uh, disease was the ever-present passenger uh, in your life. And in 1848, the year of the expedition, cholera was epidemic throughout the world. Uh, influenza was epidemic uh, in the world. And Lynch was always concerned about the health of his crew and rightly so. A, a number of times during the course of the expedition, they were terribly ill, all of them. And as a matter of fact, before the expedition was over, uh, influenza, I believe it to have been influenza, would kill his second-in-command, uh, who would die and be buried in Beirut. Um, so you're absolutely right. Uh, disease is a, is a factor, is a player in the story, uh, as much as the marauding Bedouin tribes that swept through uh, Ottoman Syria and made life miserable for, for traveling Westerners. It's, it's a heck so, of a story. I appreciate your it, interest. It, it's an amazing story. Uh, something else you, you mentioned uh, in light with the, the captain, uh, with, with, with uh, Lynch's concern for his men, is also that he took some pride in the fact that uh, his authority uh, aboard ship was, was carried out and maintained without the use of flogging, which was so common on ships like this? 
In the United States Navy in mid-18th century, I'm sorry, mid-19th century, mid-1800s, uh, flogging was a weekly occurrence on most men of war. Uh, it was the, the instrument of discipline, the instrument of social control, uh, and a feature of, of life that uh, most people aboard ship at the time couldn't imagine going away because they thought that, uh, uh, that there would be no way to keep crews uh, subordinate and, uh, and attentive without it. In fact, Lynch took enormous pride in, in the fact that he was able to get across the Atlantic, across the Mediterranean, without once resorting to flogging. And he, uh, he wrote the secretary and explained to him that that was a demonstration of the high quality of his crew and the reason for his confidence, not only in the expedition, but his hopes that the secretary would permit him to continue on to Mesopotamia, down the Euphrates River, and, uh, and continue his exploration. Mm. I want you also to mention uh, something which you talk about at some length, and that is drinking aboard ship uh, and how, how that was a, a part of the culture for, for many men uh, at sea. Uh, and, uh, it was an interesting uh, point, and especially for those uh, certain sailors, I think 10 on this ship, who uh, were uh, pledging abstinence from alcohol for the balance of the expedition. Alcohol was a feature of life in mid-19th century that, that surprises us today because it was done on the job, at home, and pretty much regardless of age or social position. And there are many reasons for this, not the least of which is most things other than alcohol were very dangerous to drink or required boiling first. Uh, but uh, in the Navy, for uh, following the, the Royal Navy example and up into... Uh, the early 20th century, uh, alcohol, uh, grog, uh, mixtures of rum and water or other kinds of potions were a daily feature of, of life at sea. The crew would line up, uh, be issued a ration of grog, and that was the high point of the day. Now, Lynch insisted that, that his volunteers who were going to travel on, on the river and onto the Dead Sea with him abstain from alcohol for the period of the expedition. And quite remarkably, uh, it appears that they all did. But back on the ship, the crew members who did not travel with him continued to draw their regular rations of grog uh, throughout the year. Hmm. To learn more about this fascinating expedition and how it all turned out, seek out Andrew Jampoler's book, Sailors in the Holy Land, the 1848 American Expedition to the Dead Sea and the Search for Sodom and Gomorrah. The book is published by Naval Institute Press.